My guest today is Professor Daniel Schachter. Professor Daniel Schachter is an American cognitive psychologist and is professor of psychology at Harvard University. His research explores the relation between conscious and unconscious forms of memory, uh, the nature of memory distortions, uh, how we use memory to imagine possible future events, and the effects of aging on memory. Uh, he has published over 300 articles and chapters on these and related topics. His two books that are relevant to this discussion are uh, Searching for Memory and The Seven Sins of Memory. Professor Daniel Schachter is with me on the phone from Boston. Uh, Daniel, thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to, glad to be able to speak with you today. Uh, Daniel, before we begin our discussion on the subjects of human memory and the nature of uh, memory distortions, uh, please tell us about yourself, about your education, about your career, and about your research. Okay, well, I, fr I first became interested in memory about 40 years ago, actually. I had just graduated from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, had my undergraduate degree, and began working as a research assistant in the laboratory of a uh, psychologist by the name of Herbert Krovitz, who was based at nearby Duke University in a, uh, a Veterans Administration hospital uh, affiliated with Duke. Uh, he hired me uh, to be his research assistant. I had an undergraduate degree in psychology and a little bit of background in um, actually mostly clinical psychology at that time. So uh, Krovitz was somebody who was interested in uh, cognitive psychology, uh, perception, and memory, and was starting to do some research with uh, patients who had memory disorders as a result of brain damage. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I, test, I was the, his assistant, and so I ended up testing Uh, these patients and uh, became immediately fascinated by uh, uh, by their cognitive profile, so to speak. Uh, on the one hand, these were individuals who seemed entirely normal. You could have a seemingly normal conversation with them. They could use language normally. They could perceive the world normally, um, but they had a dramatic Uh, inability to remember recent experiences. So they performed extremely poorly on simple memory tests. And if, for example, uh, I was testing one of these patients for an hour and went out of the room for five minutes and came back in, uh, I would be very surprised uh, to see that they had no idea who I was, even though we had just spent the, the last hour together. Mm -hmm. so that got me very interested in memory and memory disorders. Uh, I worked with Krovitz for uh, a couple of years, and then I went on to graduate school in 1976 at the University of Toronto. And at that time, uh, the University of Toronto was a, a world center for memory research and had a number of leading memory researchers uh, on the faculty, so that's what attracted me there. And I was fortunate uh, to work there with uh, Endel Tulving, who was a very well-known and very influential memory researcher. I worked in his lab. Uh, I got my Ph.D. there doing research um, on a combination of, of uh, normal memory and also starting to work, uh, do my own research with um, uh, patients with memory disorders. That got me interested in the first place. Uh, I received my Ph.D. there in 1981. And then um, I stayed on for about six years as a faculty member at the University of Toronto and uh, was fortunate to get some funding to set up uh, what we called a unit for memory disorders uh, to study uh, patients with various kinds of memory problems and see what we could learn from them. Uh, so that uh, kept me busy until 1987. And then I was recruited away to the University of Arizona, which... Um, was at that time beginning a, a new program in cognitive psychology and cognitive science, and they attracted, they had attracted a few well-known people there. Um, and uh, so I was interested in that program. I moved to Arizona, stayed there for a few years, and then in 1991 I was re uh, recruited away to Harvard, and, and I've been here uh, at Harvard and in, in the Boston area ever since.
and during this time memory has been the main focus of your research yeah it's it's always been memory um and when i first started out uh i was really focused on uh the distinction between conscious and non-conscious forms of memory or what uh the terms that uh that uh one of my colleagues and i uh um developed to talk about that distinction is the distinction between implicit and explicit memory. Mm-hmm. That's something um, um, my colleague Peter Graff and I proposed in an article in, in 1985, and what we were trying to get at uh, was uh, to try to capture the difference between two very different kinds of memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. One, one explicit memory is kind of our conscious uh, conscious recall of events and facts, the kind of thing that we all recognize as memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, remembering what we had for lunch today or remembering that Paris is the uh, capital of France. Mm-hmm. Um, implicit memory, on the other hand, is a non-conscious form of memory. It's a form of memory uh, that can influence your behavior, but you're not aware that you're remembering uh, when you're expressing implicit memory. And this is probably shown most dramatically in research with amnesic patients, and uh, a lot of this work had been done uh, prior to my getting involved in the field, and I went on and did some of this work uh, myself. So, for example, we talked about the uh, amnesic patients I used to test when I worked back with, uh, with uh, Herbert Krovitz. Uh, these patients had severe deficits of explicit memory. They really couldn't bring to mind past many past experiences but there were other ways in which they could show intact implicit memory Mm -hmm. so for example uh, many years ago back in the 1960s it was shown that a very well-known amnesic patient probably the most famous uh, patient with a memory problem uh, he's known in the literature by the initials hm Mm -hmm. he's somebody who had had damage to uh his hippocampus as a he had actually had epilepsy and had his hippocampus and other structures in the inner part of the temporal lobe removed uh, that we now know are very important for memory. And as a result of that operation, um, he couldn't remember, he couldn't establish new memories that he could later uh, explicitly recall. But it was shown back in the 1960s, for example, that HM, uh, famous patient HM, could learn new motor skills. He could, uh, he could get better at doing uh, a task, for example, tracing a, a, a moving point. Um, he would stay on task more the more that he did the task, and his task performance would improve at a normal rate, um, but he wouldn't have any conscious or explicit memory that he'd done the task. So we did related kinds of work um, at Toronto in the 1980s, uh, focusing on a, a phenomenon that came to be known in the psychology literature as priming. Um, Mm -hmm. So priming occurs when um, you've had an exposure to a particular stimulus in the past, and that stimulus affects your later responses, uh, but you don't necessarily have any conscious or explicit memory of that stimulus. So the kinds of experiments that others did and that we did with amnesic patients for example, would involve presenting them with a, a, a series of words in a list and then later on giving them different kinds of tests. If you gave them an explicit memory test where you showed them the word and said, was this word on the list, they'd have a hard time explicitly remembering uh, whether they'd seen the word or not. But, for example, if one of the words on the list was table, if you just gave them the first three letters of the word, T-A-B, mm-hmm. and said, come up with the first word that pops into your mind, uh, the amnesic patient, like a normal person, would tend to say table more frequently if they had just seen it on the list than if they hadn't. Mm -hmm. That's a priming effect. But the difference between the amnesic patient and the uh, healthy individual is that the amnesic has no explicit memory of having seen the word before. So we did a lot of work uh, on uh, uh, early on Uh, on this distinction between implicit and explicit memory, what brain regions are involved. Later on, we did studies using brain imaging techniques to look at uh, 
what was going, what goes on in the brain of a healthy individual when they're showing ex- explicit and I- implicit memory. Uh, Daniel, before we look into memory distortions in detail, uh, let us discuss that how does human memory work? Uh, you suggest that the process of remembering and retrieving memories is a constructive activity. Talk to us about the constructive nature of human memory. Yeah, that's uh, I think is a very fundamental feature of human memory. We may intuitively feel that, you know, our memory is kind of like a video recorder and that we record experiences as they happen and then we uh play them back. We know that our, you know, video recording so to speak of experience is not perfect sometimes we forget things but uh i think most people tend to think in in general terms that their memory is kind of like a recording and uh and it's just something they play back mm-hmm. but many years of uh, experiments in psychology have shown that it's much more complicated than that um and really the evidence for the idea that memory is more of a construction uh where we're bringing together different kinds of information um and what we remember is affected not only by what happened but by our uh our knowledge our beliefs and feelings so that when we remember a past experience uh what we're really pulling together is are, are some fragments of what happened in the past uh that are influenced by our current knowledge beliefs and feelings mm-hmm. kind of the sum total of that that construction is what we call a memory and a lot of the best evidence for this view of memory as a constructive process comes from the study or the demonstration of and the study of memory distortions. So we know that under controlled experimental conditions that when we know exactly what people have been exposed to it could be a story, it could be a bunch of words, it might be a videotape of an everyday scene, there are many things that we can present to individuals in memory experiments. and the critical thing is we know what happened because we we have control over that what we see is that uh what people remember is not an exact replay of what happened uh people can be accurate in their memories uh but they also can show systematic uh distortions uh and errors so they may remember things differently uh from the way they actually happened and that's really that's really the strongest evidence for the idea that memory is a construction and not just a simple or literal replay of the past. And of course, in everyday life where that becomes really important um uh is in the uh area of eyewitness testimony where we know that mm-hmm. uh eyewitnesses can, you know, often differ in their recollections of what happened when they witnessed a crime and we know from the statistics on DNA exonerations of individuals who were wrongfully convicted of crimes and then uh, uh were released from prison when DNA evidence uh, exonerated them shows that the great majority of those cases uh took place because of various kinds of errors in eyewitness testimony and eyewitness memory. Mhm. I will come back to this uh, uh issue of eyewitness memory in a minute. Uh, um, uh an individual memory may contain different elements. For instance, uh, a context, emotions. Does the brain store all elements of an individual memory at one place like a single entity or are different elements of an individual memory stored at different locations uh, in the form of a connected structure or a network? Yeah, I think most of us uh, in memory research would endorse the latter uh idea. In other words, there probably isn't any one place in the brain that you could point to and say that's where the memory is. Mhm. Um memories are distributed with different aspects or features of memories probably being stored in different parts uh of the brain and then we need of course if we we have this kind of distributed storage we need a way of pulling together uh those different um features of an experience uh so that we we can remember them together and remember uh remember at least some aspects of the experience and 
many people believe that um, the the uh, hippocampus and related structures in the inner parts of the temporal lobe that are so important uh, for memory uh, play a play an important role uh, in that uh, process of pulling together bits and pieces of experience that are stored in various parts of the uh, parts of the brain. And does the brain use similar type of structures and similar locations to store different types of individual memories such as happy memories, sad memories, memories about fear, love, hate? Well, it's a good question. I don't, I don't know that we have a great answer to that one. We do know that, I mean, you're asking really about different kinds of emotion. Mm -hmm. um, we do know that emotion plays a big role in memory and that generally emotional memories are, uh, for the most part, and in many circumstances, um, are remembered more vividly and to some extent more accurately than our non-emotional memories. And it's a, a lot of different kinds of emotions can affect a memory. Uh, there's evidence that one particular part of the brain uh, is very important for emotional memory. That's called the amygdala. Mm -hmm and that's nearby the hippocampus. And we know, for example, that when people have damage to the amygdala, they can still remember past experiences, but the evidence suggests that they don't benefit from the sort of the, uh, the boost in emotional arousal on memory that most of the rest of us do. So most people will remember an emotionally arousing experiencing it could be negative it could be positive lots of different kinds of emotions can affect memory um, but people have had damage to this uh, region the amygdala which which has been linked with emotion and other other uh, processes as well uh, will not get that same boost uh, in memory so in terms of the brain it's probably uh, it's it's most people would think that it's important to understand how the amygdala influences uh, uh, other parts of the brain that are involved in memory and what kind of uh, links are, are laid down between uh, the amygdala, the hippocampus, and other, other parts of the brain. Daniel, uh, you highlight in your book, Seven Sins of Memory, that we are all affected by uh, memory's shortcomings in our everyday lives. And you systematically classify the various memory distortions into seven basic categories. Uh, let us look into these seven sins of memories, uh, as you call them, uh, one by one. Uh, let us start uh, uh, with the first one, uh, transience. Yeah, transience is really a very basic feature of memory that we're all uh, familiar with from everyday life. And this basically refers to the fact that all other things being equal, memories of recent experiences tend to be uh, more easily recalled and retrieved than memories of more distant experiences. In other words, memories are subject are subject to transience or uh, forgetting over time. Mm -hmm. uh, this was this this really goes back in psychology research to some of the most the earliest work on memory by the German psychologist Hermann Ebbinghaus back. Uh, in 1885 who, who documented uh, a curve of forgetting that where uh, memory uh, got, gets worse uh, the longer after uh, an initial experience that memory is tested. Now there are some things that can change that but by and large the, the fact that there is a curve of forgetting and the general shape of the curve of forgetting um, it has held up uh, over time pretty well. We know, you know, we know a lot of things about transience and memory. For example, details of, of recent experiences tend to be subject to the most rapid transience. So we lose a lot of detail fairly soon after an experience has occurred unless we retrieve and think about and rehash that experience a lot, whereas we're, we're much better over time at retaining uh, kind of the general gist or general sense of, a me of, of what happened. Uh, memory for gist information tends to hold up better over time. Memory for specific details tends to fade more rapidly. 
and now moving on to the next uh, uh, shortcoming that is absent-mindedness. Yeah, absent-mindedness is also refers to a type of forgetting. Mm -hmm. So the end result of absent-mindedness is really the same as the end result of transience. You, you forgot something that happened. However, the underlying uh, mechanisms that cause that forgetting are really very different. So in the case of transients, information is encoded into memory and then it fades over time or um, uh, just becomes more difficult to retrieve over time. In the case of absent-mindedness, what we're talking about is a breakdown at the interface of attention and memory such that information may not be encoded into memory at all to begin with, therefore can't be retrieved later on, or uh, information may be encoded, but we don't, we don't, uh, we're not attending to remember at the time we need to retrieve the information. So let me give a, an example of what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, we, we talked about, we've talked about amnesic patients and the famous patient HM. Uh, a patient like HM forgets information over time because of kind of a heightened transience. The patient, the amnesic patient may be trying to remember the information, uh, but does not have the brain structures available to retain that information over time. In the case of absent-mindedness, something very different is going on. Uh, a very well-known uh, case of absent-mindedness that I talked about in, in uh, The Seven Sins of Memory um, happened to the well-known cellist Yo-Yo Ma, mm -hmm. who one day was... Uh, um, go, uh, got in a taxi cab and put his uh, $2 million cello in the trunk of the cab, got into the cab, took a taxi cab ride to the concert hall where he was going to play, and then he got out of the cab, paid the cab driver, and walked off without his cello, forgot his cello. <laughs> um, he then later realized what had happened, and eventually the cello was recovered. But this is a, a, an instructive example where... Had somebody asked Yo-Yo Ma as he was getting out of the taxi cab, do you remember where your cello is? He would have said, of course, I remember that it's in the trunk. That's a case of absent-mindedness. The information is there. It hasn't faded away over time. But in this particular case, he was not cued to remember the information. He wasn't paying attention to the fact that he had to remember at the moment that he needed to retrieve it. Other examples of absent-mindedness that we all know from everyday life would be things like uh, putting down your glasses and while you're doing something else, your attention is not focused on it, on putting the glasses down. You never really encode the information to begin with, and then uh, you forget where you put your glasses. That's not a case of transience. That's a case of absent-mindedness. Mm -hmm. Now, this, this distinction may be... Uh, very important as it relates to the fact that a lot of uh, adults, as they get older in particular, worry that when they have a memory failure, they may be developing uh, symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Now, in the case of Alzheimer's disease, what, what's happening to cause memory failure um, is pathology or, or neuro, neuropathology uh, that begins in many cases in the area of the hippocampus and the temporal lobes that, as we've discussed, are important for establishing memories. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of forgetting really is, again, it's like patient HM. It's more of a heightened transience. But many people think that I can't remember where I put my uh, glasses. I don't remember where I put my keys. Maybe I'm developing Alzheimer's disease when, in fact, it may be much more an issue of absent-mindedness, mm -hmm. uh, which is something totally different and doesn't really um, indicate problems uh, in brain regions such as the hippocampus. And the next memory shortcoming is blocking? Yeah, blocking is the third, uh, third kind of forgetting in the framework of the seven sins. And this refers to cases where memory uh, is available, it's stored, it hasn't faded away over time, you're trying to remember the information. You may be even heavily cued to remember the information, 
but you just can't come up with the answer at the time. So the most familiar, probably the most familiar example of blocking would be a tip of the tongue state where uh, you see a familiar face, you know who the person is, you may know that they're an actor, for example, um, or you might know uh, various kinds of things about them, but you just can't generate that name. Um, the information is blocked, but then it may, the, the name may suddenly appear seemingly spontaneously at a later time, showing that the information was there uh, all along. So blocking is basically a kind of retrieval failure that occurs even when you're trying to remember the information is available and, and you're paying uh, attention. Blocking is probably the number one complaint of uh, just healthy people as they get older in terms mm -hmm. of memory. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, people, people find that it happens very frequently, and it's still actually relatively poor, poorly understood as to exactly why it occurs in terms of uh, underlying brain processes. Mm -hmm. And then misattribution? Yeah. Now we move the first three of those memory sins I called uh, sins of omission. Those are kinds of forgetting. Now we're moving into the last four, what I call sins of commission. Mm -hmm. These are more uh, memory distortions, cases where memory is present but, but wrong or unwanted. So misattribution occurs when we, we remember some aspect of a past experience. We may, for example, recognize a face as familiar, but then we misattribute the source of that experience. Um, and as a result, we make a memory distortion. A, a striking example of this that I actually I talked about both in Searching for Memory and Seven Sins of Memory occurred with a, a psychologist by the name of Donald Thompson, um, who was a, a, himself a memory researcher, mm -hmm. um, who was uh, uh, wor working in a at a university in, in Australia, and um, was quite shocked one day when he was accused of raping a woman mm -hmm. who had, in fact, been brutally raped based on her memory of him. In fact, she remembered his face well enough to describe him to the police. Well, fortunately for Donald Thompson, he had an airtight alibi. He could not possibly have committed this rape because at the moment the rape was committed, he was giving a live television interview about, of all things, memory and memory distortion. So he could not possibly have committed this rape because he was uh, in a television studio at the time. Mm -hmm. What happened? Well, the woman who was raped was watching Thompson on television when an intruder broke into her house mm -hmm. and brutally raped her. And in the stress or confusion of that moment, she misattributed her memory of Thompson, which actually came from the television, to the face of the rapist. Um, so misattribution can be really very subjectively com compelling. You think the memory is real because, in fact, you did experience part of this event, but you've just got the context wrong. And misattribution errors are something, actually, that we've studied quite a bit in, in my laboratory using uh, experimental paradigms for looking at uh, misattribution. Mm -hmm. uh, many other uh, psychologists uh, have, have as well. Uh, we've done studies um, using brain imaging techniques to try to look in the brain and see whether we can tell the difference between a real memory of something that actually happened and a a misattributed memory, and even though they look very similar in many ways in the brain, there are usually some some differences in, in brain activity that distinguish uh, true memories from uh, misattributed memories. Uh, are these differences obvious enough to uh, separate um, right from wrong? Well, they are uh, kind of, uh, for the most part, in the in group studies that we do. So when we when we bring people in for um, memory experiments and put them in a brain scanner, um, what we're doing is we're averaging brain activity across maybe 20, 25, or 30 participants in, experiment, mm -hmm. in an experiment. We're getting an average uh, because the signal that a brain scanner picks up is pretty noisy, and you really need to uh, average in, across a lot of people to get the most re reliable signal. So... 
when we average across activity of you know 20 or 25 or 30 people, we can see uh, differences between accurate memories and false or misattributed memories. We're also in these experiments typically averaging across um, a lot of materials. So, for example, one way that you can create a misattribution error in the laboratory is through a very simple procedure where you read people a list of, of words mm -hmm. that are all strongly associated uh, to one another. So uh, people listening in on the radio might want to take them this test themselves. I'll read out a list of words, uh, and people should try to remember them. Mm -hmm. uh, here's the list. Candy, sour, sugar, bitter, good, taste, tooth, nice, honey, soda, chocolate, heart, cake, eat, pie. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I just gave you a list of 15 words, and we could do this uh, in an experiment where someone was in a brain scanner, uh, they'd hear that list, and now I could turn on the scanner and I could give you a memory test. And I could ask you, for example, was uh, the word taste on the list? And uh, if you said yes, you would mm -hmm. be right. Taste was one of the words that I said, and we mm -hmm. could record brain activity for that list and for a bunch of other lists. I could give you a word such as point and say, was that word on the list? And if you said no, you would be right because it wasn't on the list. Uh, and again, we could record brain activity. And then, most interestingly, I could give you a word such as sweet. Mm -hmm. Was that word on the list? Now, a lot of people in the audience now, if they're, if, they're, if they're doing this task, may think that sweet was on the list. They may remember that sweet was on the list. Many mm -hmm. people do. In fact, as many people think that sweet was on the list that I read as taste. But, in fact, it wasn't on the list. Mm -hmm. uh, the list contained a lot of words that were related to sweet, candy, sour, sugar, bitter, good, taste, tooth, nice, honey, soda, chocolate, hard cake, eat pie, but it didn't contain sweet itself. So if you think that sweet was on the list, that's a memory misattribution error. And when we do experiments like that, we record activity for uh, brain activity when you recognize words that were on the list, words that weren't on the list and had nothing to do with anything that was on the list. That's a word like point that you can easily say, no, that one wasn't there. And then finally, the interesting case of sweet, where you claim that it was on the list, but it wasn't. That's the misattribution error. We can tell differences uh, in brain activity on average when we average across people and we average across a bunch of lists uh, with similar properties. That doesn't mean, however, that we could take that technology into the courtroom now and reliably distinguish a true from a false memory um, in an eyewitness, for example. Mm -hmm. um, we're still a ways from being able to do that. Moving on to next uh, uh, memory shortcoming, suggestibility. Yes, yeah, suggestibility is, is re closely related to misattribution that we just discussed. Um, except that there's an extra element here that memory is corrupted by uh, the fact that one receives a misleading suggestion or misinformation. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I witness a crime and I'm being interviewed by an investigator who uh, has a hypothesis about what happened, they might suggest to me that, um, you know, uh, an individual, uh, one individual uh, shot somebody else. And maybe that happened, maybe it didn't happen, but the suggestion that it happened may in many cases be sufficient uh, in order, uh, sufficient to corrupt my memory for that experience. And with enough suggestive questioning, people can come to mistakenly believe that something happened in the past that didn't actually uh, happen. So, Suggestibility is something that we worry about a lot in the eyewitness context because there's now lots of evidence uh, from many, many studies uh, that misleading suggestions can result in false memories being implanted and taking hold uh, in an individual's brain. And we know that people vary in their uh, susceptibility to uh, suggestions. Some are more susceptible 
than others. Uh, but once a suggested memory is implanted and takes hold, people really treat it as if it were uh, often treated as if it were a, a real memory. Uh, and the next one is bias. Yeah, bias uh, is a more subtle kind of memory distortion, but it's very one of the most common kinds of memory distortion. I think mm-hmm. it's probably going on to some degree all the time. Bias occurs when our, our current knowledge, feelings, and beliefs uh, influence or skew or distort our memory for the past, where our memory for the past may often reflect more about what we currently know, believe, and feel than what actually happened in the past. So when it, one of many examples of this kind of uh, bias uh, in memory uh, comes from studies uh, conducted a number of years ago where investigators were looking at people's memory for social and political attitudes. So these were people who came in, uh, recorded their views on uh, issues such as legalization of marijuana, for example, uh, and then were brought back years later to the laboratory and they were asked to record their current views and also remember what did you say when you came into the lab years earlier. Mm-hmm. And the criti- critical finding from this kind of study is that people's memory uh, of, of their past political views or views on social issues like legalization of marijuana is often more closely related to what they currently believe than to what they actually said years, uh, you know, years ago in the past. That would be an example of bias, where our present knowledge and beliefs uh, skew our memories of past events. And I, th- I think that this is something that happens very frequently in memory. It may be more subtle than something like suggestibility or misattribution, but is a very, I think, important and commonplace feature of memory. And the final and the seventh sin of memory, uh, as you describe it, is persistence. Yeah, persistence is a little bit different from the others. So this is, persistence refers to cases in which um, uh, memories of highly arousing or traumatic experience become intrusive. Uh, They may be unwanted, but they persist, and we can't get them out of our minds. So, you know, I think most of us have had the experience of a disturbing event, for example, keeping us up at night, a persisting memory uh, that we just can't get rid of. And, of course, in in more extreme forms, these persisting memories can take the form of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or maybe associated with post-traumatic stress disorder, where individuals kind of be, uh, their their minds uh, become kind of overwhelmed with memories of uh, disturbing events, and uh, persistence I think is very much related to a point we discussed earlier that emotionally arousing events tend to be uh, better retained in memory than non-arousing events. Uh, that unfortunately sometimes can backfire. And so that emotionally uh, arousing events that we wish we could forget uh, intrude on our minds. Daniel, these shortcomings of human memory can lead to a conclusion that uh, this is a defective system. However, you suggest that these memory distortions should not be viewed as flaws in the system design. Instead, these distortions can be conceptualized as byproducts of otherwise desirable feature of human memory. Talk to us about this statement. Yeah, that's a very important point, so I'm glad that you, you raised it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think the, I think the example that we just went over of persistence provides a nice example of this. We want to have a memory system that will do a good job of recording disturbing events, events, for example, that could threaten our survival. This is a very good thing to have uh, a memory system that preserves uh, those kinds of experiences in in memory because it allows us to avoid, for example, potentially life-threatening events in the future if we really have a heightened, vivid memory, for example, of of a a threat or or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. But so that's a good thing. Uh, 
um, that's an adaptive feature of memory, but the downside is that um, that same property of the memory system may result in us being plagued by, for example, intrusive recollections. Or we can apply that same line of reasoning, for example, to misattribution that we talked about earlier with the example of uh, misremembering that sweep was on the list when um, you actually heard a bunch of words related to sweet, but you didn't hear sweet itself. Mm -hmm. You can think of that you can think of that memory error, that misattribution, claiming that you heard sweet when you didn't, as in a way a kind of accurate memory for the general gist of what you did hear. Mm -hmm. You heard everything about sweet, but you didn't didn't hear sweet itself. So our memories are very good about preserving the gist of past experience, the general meaning, the general sense. And again, that's a good thing. We don't want a memory system that's going to record every trivial detail of uh, every uh, experience, um, but we do want a memory system that's going to allow us to remember the important things. But uh, the downside of that is that we may be, we become prone to certain kinds of misattribution errors where we might have a very good gist memory of what we heard, but we don't record every single uh, detail. In general, that's a good thing, but it leaves us prone to those kinds of memory errors. So that's the, that's the kind of reasoning that uh, I, was, I was going for there. So perhaps uh, even uh, in the presence of these shortcomings, our brain is trying to fill the gap, is trying to give us additional information. Now, sometimes it will lead us uh, to an incorrect conclusion, but is this what our brain is trying to do when we are uh, trying to reconstruct information? Well, I think that's part of what we do. We do have a natural tendency to try to make sense of our experience and, and fill in the gaps. Another important point here, mm -hmm. um, and it's something that I really wasn't thinking about when I wrote The Seven Sins, but have focused on a lot since, uh, has to do with the fact that our memory is not just for recollecting the past. It's not just for reminiscing about what happened in the, in the past. It's for allowing... Are us to use our past experience to think ahead to the future, to imagine the future. And we and others have done a lot of research in the last few years showing that, in fact, memory and future thinking have a lot in common. A lot of the same parts of the brain, for example, that are important for memory are also uh, important for our ability to imagine uh, the future. And we think that's because we rely so heavily on memory uh, for imagining the future. Now, in order to have a memory system that allows us to anticipate different ways in which the future might play out in a very flexible way, uh, we want a memory system that's going to allow us to, for example, recombine elements of past experience so that we can kind of run simulations, if you will, about different ways in which the future might play out based on our past experience. And we think that is something our memory is very good about, allowing us to recombine bits of past experience to imagine how a future situation might unfold. But that very flexibility of memory, once again, can also you know, leave us prone uh, to making memory mistakes or miscombining information from different uh, experiences. In general, though, I think the idea that uh, we use memory uh, to imagine the future is a very important one, and it's one we've been working on uh, as of late. This leads us uh, um, to my uh, next question that you suggest in your publications, and you have just highlighted this, that remembering the past and imagining the future depend uh, on a common network in the brain. Now, this network is known as the default brain network. Uh, tell us about this default brain network. Yeah, the default network uh, is a, a, a set of interconnected regions that includes um, uh, parts of both the, the frontal lobes, uh, mm -hmm. the front of the brain, the inner part of the frontal lobes, um, some inner uh, parts of regions in the back of the brain, in the parietal lobe and, and temporal lobe, as well as the hippocampus that we've talked about in, the, in a few other regions. And this network was first uh, 
noticed by uh, brain imaging researchers because uh, when, when people were focused on, on doing a very difficult task that required them to focus their uh, attention externally, activity in these regions actually decreased, went down. And where you would tend to see increases in this network of regions would be when people were just sitting in a scanner, staring at a cross, uh, staring at a fixation point, really not doing anything. These regions would come online. Well, we later learned from experiments that a variety of labs uh, conducted in a variety of labs, including my lab, that probably what was going on when people were just sitting there, uh, staring at a fixation point, and you see all this activity in default network regions is that they're remembering the past or imagining the future. Because when we put people in a scanner and we give them simple keywords, words such as table, and we say, try to remember an experience from your past related to the word table, mm-hmm. a particular event that occurred in the past year, or try to imagine uh, a future experience related to the word table, something that might plausibly occur to you, involving a table in the next year, what you will see is that compared to various other control conditions, um, these default network regions become active under those conditions. So the default network seems to be a network that supports kind of internally focused thought, if you will, uh, that can involve remembering the past, it can involve imagining the future, it can involve thinking about, you know, what other people are thinking, basically constructing various kinds of mental simulations. Even uh, daydreaming? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's related to daydreaming. It's also related, um, uh, maybe it's another word for the same thing, uh, but to a very interesting phenomenon called mind-wandering. Mm-hmm. Of course, mm-hmm. mind-wandering is something that we're all familiar with in, in everyday life. We may, we may be, for example, in a class and supposed to be focused on a lecture, but our mind wanders off to, um, you know, uh, a concert that we went to last night or start thinking about what we might have for dinner tonight. We start having thoughts unrelated to the task we're supposed to be focused on. And experiments have shown, again, brain imaging experiments have shown, when people are in a scanner and you give them a, a, a demanding task, that when they self-report that they're mind wandering off task, um, these default network regions uh, are become active. So uh, the default network, again, is a foc- uh, associated with internally focused states uh, involving remembering the past, imagining the future, and sometimes these show up as, as mind-wandering episodes. Uh, coming back to these seven uh, distortions, my understanding is, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that different people have different levels of these shortcomings. Uh, can we use seven variables to describe the level of shortcomings? And can we use this information to describe an individual's ability to correctly reconstruct memories? Uh, it's an interesting idea. I mean, I think in general it's true that people are going to vary in where they you know, where they stand in, in terms of each of the seven shortcomings. I don't, uh, if I'm interpreting your question correctly, I don't think we're yet in a position where we could come up with some, you know, composite score for an individual uh, across these seven sins that would give us some, you know, something relative, you know, something like an IQ measure or mm-hmm. something about, you know, a memory accuracy or, or memory fidelity measure. Uh, in an individual. Uh, But, yeah, I think there definitely are individual differences in each uh, of of the seven that that are important to understand. The reason I am suggesting such a scale is, and you also touched upon this point a few minutes ago, that our legal systems hugely depend on eyewitness evidences. If we can scientifically develop a scale and a mechanism to measure individuals' ability to correctly reconstruct their memories, perhaps this can be used to determine the reliability of an eyewitness evidence? Yes. Um, we do have some things, a little, uh, some things now, I don't think there's any one 
you know, w- one test that would give you everything you would want. But, mm-hmm. for example, there are suggestibility scales that have been used to kind of gauge how susceptible uh, an individual is to, uh, you know, corruption of memory uh, through suggestion. And there are other measures as well that, that can be used. Um, so we have some of that now, uh, but we don't, we don't have really any one test that you could say is a gold standard to uh, assess how reliable uh, someone is going to be. I mean, another point is that it's not necessarily the case uh, that, you know, across all the seven sins, you know, someone who, for example, is highly absent-minded doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be highly prone to suggestion. Mm-hmm. Or someone who is, you know, highly prone to persisting memories um, doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be highly prone to misattribution. So there are probably a number of dimensions or features there, and we don't really have as good an understanding uh, right, right now uh, as we need to of how they're all related to one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, a question uh, that is related to your more recent work, uh, how does aging affect our ability to reconstruct memories? Well, um, in a variety of ways, I think relevant to this discussion, probably the points that I would stress most are that as we get older, there's certainly a lot of evidence that our ability to remember specific detail Uh, suffers, but that we retain a pretty good memory for the gist of what happened. So, for example, um, if you do an experiment involving that <coughs> word list we used earlier, the sweet list, mm-hmm. uh, with older adults and younger adults, older adults will generally have a higher level of false memory, false recognition of the related word sweet. And that's probably because The older adult is remembering the gist of the list pretty well, uh, but not remembering the specific details uh, as well as the younger adult. Another area where we've done a lot of work on this recently has been in what we talked about with respect to remembering the past and imagining the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we've seen is that uh, when we compare younger and older adults um, in simple uh, experiments where we ask them, give them a word cue, and we ask them um, to remember an experience from their past, and they can talk about that experience in as much detail as they'd like for a few minutes, or imagine an experience that might occur to them in the future. What we see is that older adults tend to re- remember the past and imagine the future uh, in less specific detail than do younger adults. So the older adult will report fewer details about Uh, you know, what happened in an event or what might happen or what people look like in a past event or an imagined future event. Uh, and that is actually pretty interesting evidence for the uh, close relationship of remembering the past and imagining the future. But the more important point with respect to aging is that uh, the ability to both remember the past and imagine the future is less specific as we get older. One of the very recent projects in, in our lab has been looking at the question with both young and old people mm-hmm. uh, of whether we can increase the specificity or detail of memory uh, through a simple um, brief induction or, or brief training uh, experience. Uh, so in these experiments, what we do is we initially show people a brief videotape of It would, be, it would involve a couple of people just carrying out uh, fairly ordinary events in a kitchen, for example. And then what we call the specificity induction, or the, the training in trying to increase memory specificity, in one condition, we take them through a guided interview um, that has actually been used previously to try to boost recall and eyewitnesses, where we have them Remember, try to remember, create a picture in their mind of exactly what happened in the video and really focus on the details of what people look like, what actions happen, what objects look like, and so forth. And then after that, we give them various tasks involving remembering actual experiences from their life or imagining future experiences. 
And what we find is after they've had the specificity induction compared to a control uh, condition, that they remember experiences from their own life and imagine possible experiences that might occur in their own life in more specific detail than they would have otherwise. And that applies to both young and old individuals. So that's some interesting evidence that there are ways to increase uh, the specificity of both memory and imagination. Uh, uh, Daniel, can these shortcomings of human memory affect our sense of uh, self-awareness? Well, I think to the extent that you know, memory, memory is certainly relevant to our self-awareness and our um, sense of self. If we don't have much of a memory you know, of our past, then there is almost by definition a sense in which our self is a little less complete than it could be otherwise. Um, so our memory uh, forms a, you know, a critical basis for our own self-understanding, and so the two, I think the two are so closely related that the answer to that question has got to be yes, at least in some sense and to some degree. A slightly different question. Uh, Daniel, we know that there is uh, no universally accepted definition uh, of consciousness. But if I ask you, uh, if I invite you to define consciousness or try to define consciousness, uh, how would you start? How would you proceed? Well, I think uh, as many people have talked about with respect to consciousness, it's hard to have a single definition Mm-hmm. of consciousness. We could you know, talk about it generally as our, our awareness of experience, but uh, there are probably different kinds of consciousness. So, for example, let's go back to uh, our example of uh, amnesic patients that we began with. Mm-hmm. Uh, these people certainly are conscious of the present moment, um, aware of the present moment, aware of their uh, environment, and so would you could say that they possess normal consciousness in that sense of the term, um, but they have a highly diminished uh, consciousness of both their past and, in many cases, of their future. And these patients have a hard time envisioning the future just like they do of remembering the past. So you might say that their temporal consciousness, or their consciousness of personal subjective time, is highly diminished while their consciousness of the present moment is fairly clear. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, it's probably oversimplistic to talk about consciousness just as uh, one thing. Uh, and finally, uh, what are major developments and breakthroughs that you envisage in the field of psychology and research on the nature of memory, say, in the next 50 to 60 years? Oh, that's a hard, hard question to answer. <laughs> um, uh, I think probably what we're going to see is a lot, uh, a lot greater ability uh, to link up our understanding of memory at different levels. So now we have a, an understanding of, of memory kind of at the psychological or cognitive level and a reasonably uh, decent understanding of it at the level of brain systems. And we know a lot about the details of how, for example, individual neurons work and, and how they encode memories. What we don't know is how all those levels relate to one another uh, in a very clear way. So I think we'll probably uh, really fill in uh, the the links uh, in understanding memory at different levels and and have a much broader picture of how memory at the level of the neuron gets translated into memory, you know, at the cognitive or psychological level will really... Uh, pretty much in the dark about that at the moment. And uh, uh, just one sub-question about consciousness. You have done a lot of research on brain activities with regard to memory. Do you think that consciousness is something that happens in our brains or it is something that happens somewhere else? And this issue of where is mind, is this in the brain or somewhere else? Oh, uh, um, I guess my view is that it's, it's in the brain. It's an expression of the brain. It's an expression of brain activity, so I can't really separate uh, the two things. I would, I would see it as uh, mind as an expression of uh, brain activity, a high level of brain activity. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing mysterious about that? And one day we'll, well get there. Well, it's mysterious because we don't really understand it. Mm-hmm. We don't understand it 
but I think ultimately when we do understand it, we'll understand it at, you know, as a very high level uh, of brain activity. That would be my view. Uh, Professor Daniel Schachter, thank you very much for being with us. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Uh, thanks. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you and goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you.